0: Well, good morning, church family. If you are joining us online, we are so glad you're with us as well. Excuse me while I shift a couple things so that I've got space to run around like a maniac. That's right. That sounds exciting, doesn't it, Sarah? Uh, We are just going to kick off right away with some words of Scripture today. And I'm going to put first, I'm sorry, for the book of 2 Timothy, in a second, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 will be up. And I'd like us to read this aloud together. You can follow along on the screen. Paul writes, here we go. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you have some Anglican background, that's okay, we'll catch up. Uh, This is a kickoff Sunday for us, a kickoff of our ministry year. The summer is over, and most of you, I don't know how you feel about that. Some of the parents look a little happy that it's done, and some of the uh, others think, oh, it's over, that's too bad. Uh, We're returning from holidays, we're going back to school, there's a return to our regular ministry programming here at North Shore Alliance Church, and this provides us with an opportunity. An opportunity to reflect on who we are as a church and what it is that we're hoping to accomplish here on the North Shore. Now, I think normally I would take one Sunday a year, one Sunday, kickoff Sunday, to typically talk about what we're doing as a church and kind of refresh the vision plate in that way. But since over the past year our visions and values have been updated, I'm going to take this Sunday and the next four to refresh our ministry focus as a church. I'm still ringing quite a lot. If you attended the vision night we had about last year at about this time, uh, some of the things I talk about will not be a surprise to you. I spoke at that time about five things we would be for as a church. We'll put these up on the screen for you now, now. That we would be a church that is for the gospel and the word of God, a church that is for the poor and needy, a church that is for the North Shore, a church that is for the redemption of the whole human person, and a church that is for the global mission of God. Now, one thing I'm really pleased to say is that over the past year, as I've watched our church, I've gotten to know you, listened to you, I've paid attention to our cultural moment, my sense that these are the right values for this time has not changed. In fact, I'm more convinced than ever that these are the things we need to really focus in on if we're gonna be a powerful church in this postcode. That's what I expect is the case. So, over the next weeks, we're gonna focus in on each one of these in turn, week by week. A couple of questions may be in your mind. First of these. Why take so much time to focus on who we are as a church? Why take five weeks to to think about these kind of things? Well, there's a couple answers. One is that we are still recovering from COVID. The church globally is still recovering from the COVID season. And it it made momentous changes to the landscape of the church. I don't know if you know this. Momentous changes everywhere. Congregants changed. The makeup of our church changed. Attendance patterns changed. And our cultural engagement with a wider culture was brought into tension because of this business. Huge changes in the landscape of the church, and that creates the opportunity to reflect on who we are and what we're doing. And I think we should take that opportunity. Another answer to why I spend so much time is because one of the things we're always doing is laboring to articulate our church identity. I'm going to use some big words, but we'll come back to that. We're laboring to articulate, to understand our identity as a church. Now what's identity? Identity marks the thing as itself and not something else, right? I'm me and not Anthic. That's lovely, isn't it? And Anthic is Anne and not me. Isn't it nice that we're not the same person, right? And I'm not a chair or a table. I am myself and not something else. We are a church and not a club. We're a church and not a political block. We're a church and not a social activity community or social action community, right? And we are a church and not whatever labels the world applies to us. We are ourselves, and that's what we are supposed to be, and we have to focus on this. Now, there's a couple ways we can assert this identity. Uh, we can focus on the isness ness of what it means for us to be a church. Uh, we assert it in the first place as members of the church of Jesus Christ, right? One church, because there's one body of Christ, one universal group of people joined to him in faith by the power of the Spirit in redemption on the kingdom of God journey. Great. One global body. And we get to focus on the universal in that way. But there's also something particular, something unique about who we are at 201 East 23rd Street. Something unique. And we get to be the church both in that big sense and in that really focused local sense. Both of these are tied to our identity on here. So there's a principle here behind some of this. A people who have a strong identity are able to effectively differentiate from their environment and from others. Okay, I'll say that again. If we have a strong identity, we have a strong sense of who we are as a church, we will know who we are, and we'll know where we're being challenged to be different than we are. We'll know the boundary points between ourselves and the world. We'll know where culture has infiltrated us and and made its home in our space, where things we're doing have more to do with our local culture than maybe they do with the global gospel of God. And we have to know those boundary points. So differentiation means I know where I begin and I know where you end. I know my values, and I know your values. And I know the boundary points between these things. Do you know the boundary points of our local culture? Are we aware of them? Are we aware of ourselves enough to know where we're being uh, challenged? Do we know when our Christian convictions bring us into honest conflict with the world? Honest and sincere conflict. And do we have the courage to hold to those convictions when things get sticky? You see, if you really know who you are you can have the courage to hold to those things when it gets tough. If you don't know who you are, the temptations to compromise will be so strong. So this is why knowing our identity as a Christian church of God is so terribly important. And that's the puzzle and the challenge. We have to know who we really are so that we can stand firm on those things, so that we can fulfill our mission effectively. Identity is part of our mission. So, second question you might have. Why did I talk about things that are for why fours, things, why five fours, which is a funny thing to say, fee fi fo 54s okay? Well, the, this comes out, I think, of our cultural moment. This is, a, this is a posture that comes out of our cultural moment. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the church has been enjoying a very embattled season, not just North Shore Alliance, but the church globally. We've had some terrible press, haven't we, in the Christian church? And we've made some really bad cultural decisions. And we've had some really bad leaders get, get roasted publicly. And we've not, sh- we've not shown our best side to the world, or at least the world's not looking at our best side. And this has made some trouble. Now, there's also been a real sharp and pronounced division between the values of our culture and the values of our God and His Word. Haven't that, hasn't that also come to place? A divide that really has increased drastically over the past 30 years. I mean, there was always a divide between the church and the world. We could pretend for a time that that, that Christendom existed, right? The church was in charge. But it was never the case. Always a divide. But the, the, the pronounced division has increased radically over the past 30 years. We see it especially with regard to the sexual ethics of the world. The traditional church holds to traditional views of human sexuality. The world does not. Now, here's the trick, because the world will make us think that this is the main issue between us. This is the thing, that they believe in a kind of sexual libertinism, and we're, we're, um, we have a kind of belief in sexual aggressivism, but there's something behind it, and what's behind it is that we have radically different ideas about freedom. You know what the world says? You don't get to tell me what to do. Do you know what we believe as Christians? God gets to tell everyone what to do, because he's God, and we're not. And so really at the heart of the world's rebellion is this idea that I'm free to be me, and we say, I'm not free, I'm bound by something outside of myself. So tied to this embattled season is a cultural narrative about the church. Maybe you've come across this narrative in your life as well. It's in the media, it's in the minds of our neighbors and friends, it's in the laws and civic actions of our state that there's a narrative about what we are as Christians. Here's the narrative. We are a backwards bunch of religious nutjobs who are oppressing people, traumatizing them through our doctrine, actively holding back the progress of a modern Canada, and on top of it all, and the worst thing of all, we're suspiciously American. Okay? Our doctrine and life traumatizes people, causes harm, holds back the future. We're regressive we're an outmoded organization. And all these narratives are at play, often with the people you know and talk to. They find that you're a Christian, and there's a kind of smell in the air. Oh, you're one of those. And that's the narrative that's at play. And these perceptions are defining us as a church. And the danger is that we will draw our identity from the hostile environment more than from the God who calls us out of it. <laughs> Do you hear that? The danger we slip into is that our identity is formed more by the hostility of our neighbors than by the God who loves us. And that's why we have to have a different posture. It calls for a shift. Now, I don't want us to go from a defensive posture to an offensive posture, right? It's not about uh, me every week taking up a cultural hot button issue and then training you to be culture warriors and keyboard warriors and going out to fight the good fight against all these places of culture. Do you know why that's bad? because we're still being defined by our opponents. We're not being defined. You know what, it's not that the culture presents a yin and the church provides a yang and we just work in balance all the time defining by one each other. We are outside of it. A word from outside the world has come in and we are trying to cling to that word. And so I want us to shift from a defensive posture to one that is steady and assured. A place of confidence, centeredness, a confident identity. And I want to do this by focusing on the things that we are for rather than the things that we might be against. And there are things we're against, but that's not what I want to be known for. And that's not how I want you to be formed in the image of Christ. So if you'll allow me an illustration, if we are baking a cupcake here at North Shore Alliance Church, these are the five ingredients that I think are essential. Yes, yes. We're baking a cupcake. This is the stuff. We're going to have to have the word and the gospel of God. We're going to have to have a love for the poor and needy. We're going to have to have a concern for our local area. We're going to have to have a concern for a journey of redemption for everyone who comes into our midst. And we have to have a concern for what God is doing in the world. These are the things we have to have and we're going to bake a good cupcake here. Now, are these the only five ingredients that we might have put in this cupcake? No, no. Am I saying that other churches that might have slightly different emphases are less valuable as churches than we are? No. In fact, I really want to point out that we are not in competition with anybody. We only have to focus on what God is asking us to do here in this place. We only have to please one person, and that's God. We're not in competition. We're just trying to be obedient to what's in front of us. But I will say that these five ingredients are are what we need at this time. I'm convinced that we need to focus on these things. They're not missing. We've not not had them. I should say that also. This values uh, rollout is not a change in the core values of the church. It's just a focus and an emphasis on where I think we need to be for effective mission in this time. So for this week and the next four weeks, we're going to each dive into one of these values in order to center our identity as a church, but also so that you who attend will know exactly what you are aligning with when you align yourself with North Shore Alliance. Someone says, oh, you go to that church. What are they about? Well, I'll tell you what they're about. And you can rattle it off. If, well, maybe I should give cookies for people who can rattle off all five. Never mind. That's going to have a lot of cookies. Okay. So with these kind of introductory comments out of the way, let me turn to the first thing that we are for, the first of our fours, which is that we are for the gospel and the word of God. For the gospel and the word of God. This is our foundation. This is the flower of the NSA cupcake, Right? It's the bulk of it. It's the body. It's the most important piece, the most important ingredient, without which nothing we do will be lasting, nothing we do will work, nothing we do will hold together, nothing we do will function, and nothing we do will survive the testing that God brings to us. And we will be tested. And if we don't have a foundation in the Word, we will fail these tests. So we are for the good news about Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And we are for the Word of God that testifies to this good news. Why separate them? Why make two things? Well, importantly, and this is really important, the gospel really is bigger than the book. The gospel message is bigger than the book itself. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. The good news existed before the book was written. The first people to preach didn't have gospels to preach. The preaching happened and the church began before that was the case. The good news is effective even for people who are illiterate. You don't have to know how to read in order to receive the good news about what Jesus has done. It's bigger than the book. There's more to say about God than is documented in the book, isn't there? He's infinite and ineffable. It's not contain God, but it does do something else. And and yet, we cannot take one apart from the other. We can't just say, oh, we're all about the gospel and we don't need the book. They're bound together pretty intimately. If we claim to preach a gospel, but we neglect the book, we will always drift from the framework that God has laid out for us. And I think we will find eventually that we are preaching a gospel that looks a lot more like our culture than like God's kingdom. Drift from the word, and you're going to preach things that people want to hear. That's what we read in 2 Timothy just a few minutes ago. We have to stick to the word because this is our pole star. So, what is the gospel? Sometimes this is a hard question to answer, isn't it? People ask you, what's the gospel? And some of you have memorized the Romans Road, and you've got it on point. And some of you have gone, evangelism explosion, and you've got some answers ready for these things. But the the, the truth of the matter is that the gospel is more than one thing. It's more than one thing. Now, the word gospel means good news. It means good news. And the first piece of good news, the most traditional piece of good news, is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the grave. It's not just that he died. If he died for your sins, that's great. But everybody dies. What's the big deal? It's that he came back to life. If you go through the book of Acts and you read the preaching of the the, the apostles in Acts, they always talk about the resurrection. I mean, they're like, yeah, he died, but he came back to life again. That's the thing that's really exciting. And that's the first piece of good news. The gospel is also the good news that although we are separated from God and separated from one another and experiencing disruption in our lives and disruption in our world, in our relation to the world, there is a way to healing and wholeness to the work of Jesus Christ. Things can be right in your heart if things are right between you and God. Have you met Jesus? He makes a way. That's good news too. Another piece of the good news is that when Jesus meets you and saves you, he fills you with his Holy Spirit to bind you to him and bind you in a journey of what we call regeneration, being made alive and made new. It's good news that there's help for the journey. You're not on your own. And that's also good news is that God has called and brought out a body of people called the church who will journey together and support one another and represent God's work on the world as he continues his path on mission. The church is part of the good news despite whatever the world may say about it. You can't separate the one piece of good news. Jesus saves people from the other piece of good news, and it happens in the church. They all go together. So, this is the big picture on what is the gospel. And this good news may be bigger than the book, but the primary way we access this news is here. This is the primary way we get access to this news. And that's just why we're both for, the, for both the gospel and the Word of God. Now, let's talk about what the Word of God is, okay? Now, there's a couple different senses as well. In one sense, it's Jesus. Jesus is the Word. Remember what it says in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Logos. He is the principle of order and reason and rationality. If you make sense of anything in the world, it's because Jesus makes sense of those things on our, as, as a way to help us. He is the Word in a real way. But in another sense, it's this collection of 66 books. What's special about this collection of 66 books? It's that although it's written over a period of thousands of years, each author seems suspiciously to speak about the exact same being and have the same experiences with him. And there appears to be one thread of narrative that runs through the entire thing, leading from the creation of the world to the redemption of Jesus Christ and the return of him at the end of time. One story. It's a powerful book with powerful things. And so it points to the work of God called Yahweh as He creates, disciplines, stewards, reaches out, and ultimately saves His creation. And so we are reading the document of God's work in the world, and this means the Word of God is the faithful record of God's work in history. Becoming for us, it becomes a rule for conduct, a guide to life, and an encouragement as we wait for God's coming again. It's our poll, it's our axis. It shows us this is the grid lines, that sits behind our documents so we know which way is up and which way is down. And we get to see according to God's way. So what does it mean for us to be for this book? If we're going to posture ourselves to be for something, what does it mean for us to be for this book? And I think it means two important things for us. And the first is this. The book is our authority. This book is our authority. And if it's our authority, that means our relationship is one of submission to the book rather than dominance of the book. This is our authority authority. We believe the book testifies to God's intention for humanity in a way that stands outside of time and above culture. That's important. We think this book testifies outside of time and above culture. Now, there are stories and episodes that happen in here, and they, have to be, they happen in cultural space, and they have to be read carefully and wisely. But these aren't just words to Jewish peasants 2,000 years ago. There is something timeless about these words that extends beyond that space. Its messages are not limited to the first century. And you know what? 2,000 years of church history have proved this true. In every generation, they've read this book and find it fruitful, fruitful outside of time. It's remarkable to see how it happens. Okay? So when we claim this book as our authority, I've said already, we claim we are submitting to the book. If we have a dispute, we go to the book. If we're uncertain about something, we go to the book. If we want to know what God's like, we go to the book. If we think we've heard God's voice but we're not sure, we can go to the book. We've got this as our arbiter, our first counsel. And what we mean is this also forms us as a people. The book becomes the groundwork on which we build our identity. We wrestle with it, we read it, we study it, we learn it. And so the book becoming our authority, we begin to take our cues for how to be God's people. Now, does submission to the book mean that Christians everywhere are gonna look the same thing, right? If we all have the same book, shouldn't we all look the same? And I think the answer is not at all. And let's get to this as the second point, because we also affirm that the book is the seed of our unique faith. The book is the seed of our unique faith. What do I mean? We are anchoring ourselves on an ancient text. The text is the foundation. It's our grounding. It's our grid lines. And the materials that get built on that foundation are determined by our environment, by the people around us. And we're going to have a unique picture of what it means to be church because we get to build in, I mean, if you know that some of you make make sourdough bread, okay? And you know that everywhere you go in the world, there's different yeast cultures in the air. So sourdough bread tastes different in different places because the yeast cultures are different. It's all bread. The principles are the same, but it tastes like its environment. Church's principles are the same, but we should have the yeast of what God is doing in our midst, There should be a local flavor, a 100-mile roll, right? Where we're building on these things in certain ways. Now, the authoritative foundation is terribly important. If we lose this grounding, then we do lose our identity. We blur between us and culture around us. I'm going to read you a quote from a missiologist named Paul Hebert, and he wrote about cultural anthropology uh, and Christianity. So here, you've got to need your notes, and it's going to be on the screen as well. Here's Paul Hebert's words. We must distinguish between the gospel and culture. If we do not we will be in danger of making our culture the message. The gospel then becomes democracy, capitalism, pews and pulpits, Robert's rules of order, clothes and suits and ties on Sunday. One of the primary hindrances to communication is the foreignness of the message, and to a great extent, the foreignness of Christianity has been the cultural load we have placed upon it. In other words, Christianity reads as foreign because it's being mixed in with cultural items that aren't Christianity. As Mr. Murti, an Indian evangelist, put it, do not bring us the gospel as a potted plant. Bring us the seed of the gospel and plant it in our soil. I think that's a beautiful word. The gospel is a seed being planted in the soil of North Vancouver at 201 23rd Street East. Not a potted plant. We're not supposed to look like Redding. We're not supposed to look like Australia. We're not supposed to look like Dallas. We're not supposed to look like any place but what we are here. And so we focus on the word because the word is the seed and the word will be planted and then we let God grow in our midst what it is he wishes to grow in this place and watch those things come to fruition. Incredible wisdom. So in this cupcake recipe for the church, you cannot substitute the Word of God for anything else. You guys ever read recipes online, and you always see this beautiful recipe, and then the first commentator said, hey, the recipe called for four cups of flour, so I substituted four cups of ground kale, and it turned out awful. (laughs) You think, you nut job. It's supposed to look one way. You know what? You cannot substitute the Word of God for anything else. You can't do it. It's like putting kale in a cake. Don't do it. <laughs> the Word of God is the foundation, the foundational ingredient, the main thing. He gives us our sure foundation, and God gives us incredible freedom to be fruitful as we are in this place, so long as we're built on that foundation. Incredible freedom to be fruitful. It's wonderful. All right, I'm going to stick with the food analogy more because maybe I'm hungry. Um, if we're making cupcakes... If making cupcakes, it is important that the cupcake be profoundly Christian, but the icing can be as Canadian as we want it, okay? The body of the cupcake has to be Christian. The icing can be Canadian, and that's fine in that place. If we don't prioritize the word, what's going to happen is we're going to have a very Canadian cupcake with little Christian sprinkles on top, right? It'll have the image of Christianity. It'll appear it, but the, the content won't be the case. And this is precisely what happened to a great many churches in Canada over the past 80 years. And I, I'm not here to, to, to cut anyone down. I'm not talking about these in this way. I'm just describing some, some real historical realities of what happened. So when the United Church of Canada was founded in 1925, it had two goals, two really noble goals, the gospel and social action. We're gonna be for the word of God, and we're gonna be for social engagement. But very, very quickly... The social engagement outpaced the gospel, and the gospel became less and less and less important. And so that today, in the last uh, 50, 30 years, many churches in the United Church are just Canadian bodies, and there's very little, there's sprinkles of Christianity on top. Now, I'm not saying, some of you grew up in United Churches, some of you have lovely friends and family, some of you have faith that was birthed in these places. I'm not saying that's unreal. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just using it to describe what happens when we don't prioritize the word first. It drifts, and we become cultural bodies rather than deeply Christian bodies. What I want is a cu- Christian cupcake with Canadian icing. So how are we going to do this? What will it mean for us to be for the gospel and the word of God? Well, I've got two sets of commitments for us, two sets of commitments. One of them comes from leadership, and the other come from congregants. And I'm going to move fairly quickly through these commitments, because I think in some ways they're, they, I think they're self-evident, but it's worth saying them out loud. From leadership, the first commitment is the commitment to teach the word in season and out of season. We will teach this word when it feels good and when it doesn't feel good. We will teach this word in season when there's, a, there's great stuff happening and out of season when it looks like nothing's happening. We will teach this word always. That's what we see in 2 Timothy chapter four, verses twelve, uh, chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Okay? First commitment seems fairly obvious to me from leadership. Second leadership commitment is the commitment to search the word for our decision-making and counsel. When we're making decisions and we're looking to what God wants for us, we will go to the Word. We will be part with the Word. We will study alongside it. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men." When the Bereans heard the gospel for the first time, their first gut instinct was, let's go to the Word. Let's see if it's there. Let's study it together. And they took counsel with the Word to make the decision on whether they would become uh, Christians, and they did become Christians. And the third commitment from leadership is the commitment to submit to the Word in matters of faith, life, and doctrine. I am not... I have, I have a lot of authority in my position, but I am not in authority over the Word. Right? I am under the authority of the Word. And I have to maintain that. I have to submit to the word as well, just like all of you. I don't, I don't stand over the word and then make you submit by means of my interpretation of the word. That's devious and manipulative. That's not how it works, okay? We all sit under the authority of the word. We're all in a state of submission to what God has to say. It's not rules for me, rules for thee, but not for me. That's not how it works. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is our guide. Okay? Now, what are, the con- what are the commitments expected from congregants? Uh, I'm going to give you three horticultural images. I want you to plant the Word and water the Word and then trust in the Lord's harvest. Plant the Word. Uh, I won't go through the whole thing now. Many of you are familiar with the uh, parable of the sower. Sower goes out, tosses seeds. Some falls on hard paths, Some falls on rocky ground. Some falls among thorns. Some falls on good soil. And the good soil produces a great harvest. And I think one of the invitations of the parable of the sower is you get to decide what kind of soil you're going to be. Are you going to remove the rocks and the thorns? And let God soften the hardness of your heart so you could be good soil. Because I think the miracle of faith is that God does transform us in these ways. Are you going to do that? And that's, part, that's your part of planting the word. You're going to hear the word. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to brush it off? Oh, I don't, that's not for me. I don't need that. Are you going to try and listen and say, God, where's the word for me in this today? And so we want to be receptive soil to the hearing of God's word. We plant by hearing, we plant by obeying, we plant by reading the word, we plant by coming together as a body to listen to the preached word. These are ways that we plant. Second image, water. Water the words. I mean, once the word is in our heart, it needs some water. And the water of the word, the water, (laughs) the water for the word is God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is what's going to water this word. And fill it and cause it to grow within you. So, how does God water our word? He waters through community. We get together and we experience the Spirit in communal worship. We experience it through sung worship. You can sing privately, you can sing together as a group, but when you seek the Lord in worship, He shows up in powerful ways. And the Spirit also shows up through holiness. When we take seriously the demands to be a people that look like God and we begin to use the Spirit's power to deal with the sin in our lives, then holiness leads to more Spirit. And this also waters the Word. And then the third thing is to trust in the Lord's harvest. Remember, in the parable to the sower, the seed grows all on its own. You don't actually have to do a lot. God will cause things to grow for you. And if God is planted, it will come to fruition. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. If God speaks, it's going to happen. And if God's word is planted in your life, something will come out of it. Now, here's the good news. My uncle does this thing. He talks about the law of the sower. Maybe some of you have heard this. Maybe you not. There's three laws of the sower. You reap what you sow. You reap later than you sow. And you reap more than you sow. Okay. If you sow bitterness in your home, you know what you're going to get? More bitterness. You know when you're going to get it? Later. Okay? If you sow unkindness to people around you, you're going to get unkindness in spades, and it's going to come later. But if you sow the Word of God, you're going to get more of God's Word, but it's going to come later. And that's why you have to trust in the Lord's harvest. You don't know when the fruit's going to come, You don't know when it's going to manifest. You don't know how it's going to look when it does. Because again, we've all got the same seed, but each of us has different bits and bops of our bodies so that God's doing things in us. That's great. It's going to look different in each of us, but it will be distinctly God's. So we will be a church that is for the gospel and the word of God. The good news of what Jesus has done, the good news of what Jesus is doing, the good news of God's Holy Spirit, the good news of God's redemption, and the word that testifies to that, to which we submit. And this is the foundational vision and value that we have as a church here on the North Shore. So we get to shift tone right now. We get to go into this wonderful meal that celebrates these things. I'm going to invite our musicians to come and take their places. So what do we have here? We have this story of um, the Word became flesh. Jesus, eternal, infinite, almighty, takes on flesh and makes his dwelling among us. And that means that spiritual reality and physical reality are forever overlapped in a way that is mind boggling. And so, what do we get? We get things that are quite simple little bits of sourdough bread. I didn't think about that when I said sourdough, right? And we've got grape juice. They're not very special in themselves, are they? I'll tell you the truth. Neither are we. We're not very special either. But somehow by the Spirit of God, he draws close to us. And he says that he's present in the bread. He says when you take this, you're eating him. And when you drink this, you're drinking him. And there's a moment of transformation. Let me read the text for you. I will invite the communion servers to also come and take their places and get set up. And then I'll explain some things. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed, come on here, come on again, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, I've got, details-wise, I'm two servers short of a Happy Meal. Yeah, that's great, Dean. Let me explain some pieces of what's going on. I've got uh, several pieces to explain, so hold with me for a moment. So uh, what's going to happen is the servers are going to pick up the bread and the juice, and you're going to come forward. They're going to tear off a piece and give it to you and say, this is the body of Christ given for you, okay? I'll place it in your hand. You could take it and put it in the cup, and as you dip it in the cup, the person holding the cup will say, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you or shed for you. And you could take it right then, or you can walk back to your seat and eat it. Now, this is a symbol of our unity as the body of Christ, a symbol of what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection, a symbol of what God is doing in us by transforming us. If you are not ready to receive that, That's okay. You can come forward. You can put your arms over your chest like this, and we'll bless you. Let us pray for you and bless you anyway, no matter where you are in your journey of faith. Um, But this is how we're going to do this. If you have um, gluten concerns or wheat concerns, we have uh, some separate crackers here and juice as well um, to to accommodate you in that way. Okay? Final thing to mention. Our our tablecloths for mission, our tablecloths for communion, uh, remind us of our mission, This one comes from Zambia. We're joined um, in faith with the Project Samuel mission in Zambia, and we remember them in prayer this morning. Uh, So allow me to pray for this meal, and then uh, we can come. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection, and for the work you've done. And I pray now that you will reach out and touch us through this meal as we seek you. These things I ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.